Let me invite you to find a Bible. If you've not brought one with you, there are some provided in the pews in front of you. Uh, It will be helpful to you as we consider uh, God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible in front of you so that you may look and read along as we'll spend a great deal of time in it. Uh, But we're going to be considering together Luke 1 this morning. I've spent a I've spent a significant uh, amount of time in the last few weeks in Luke chapters 1 and 2, perhaps more so than I've done previously. Uh, I taught our men's Bible study uh, the last two times over those two chapters. We did chapter 1 and then about half of chapter 2 this past time together. And Luke is a special book in in terms of the, the gospel accounts in the New Testament, in part because it tells us so much about the the birth narrative, both of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ. Most all of we know about the birth narrative of John and also of Jesus and of his childhood as a boy, uh, we know because of Luke's gospel account. And uh, so it is appropriate as many congregations will turn and uh, many families will turn and many Christians will look and read and consider these, uh, these verses and these chapters together during this time. If you're visiting with us, I want you to know that we normally uh, always preach through books of the Bible. Uh, Those of you that were with us this past Sunday know that we brought to a conclusion our lengthy study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So that afforded us a good opportunity before we start our next study to take some time now and consider this passage from Luke chapter 1 this morning on Christmas Eve. Now, most people, when they want to turn to the Christmas story, uh, if you will. They, they go directly to Luke 2 and sort of skip over Luke chapter 1. I have found over the last few weeks, particularly Luke chapter 1, to be extremely helpful and extremely important in our understanding. This morning, we're going to consider the part of the story where Mary, the mother of Jesus, after the Angel Gabriel announces that Jesus is going to be born, and she goes to visit Elizabeth, um, who is with child, being John the Baptist. And uh, they praise and give thanks to God because of what he's done now in Mary. After that birth announcement and that declaration of joy and praise in verses 39 through 45, Mary gives what is effectively the first Christmas carol. There is this Christmas song, and the the overarching theme and tone of this song is that of joy. We find Mary in the beginning, you'll see as we read, rejoicing greatly because of what God has done, both for her and for Israel and for the world. And uh, Mary, for those who do study this passage, so much of the time in in Luke 1, the, the focus of our study is on the person of Mary and on the miraculous events. And listen, those things that took place in her life, we can never understand. They are amazing and incredible and, and, and they are valuable and worthy of our time and consideration. But I want you to know that the point of the story is more about God than Mary. And no one makes that clearer than Mary herself does in the song of praise and rejoicing that she offers beginning in chapter, I mean, in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. So I heard one pastor um, refer to uh, Mary's song like this, that Mary is rejoicing God through a telescope, not a microscope. Now that's really important because we're going to see in the first verses that her soul, she declares, magnifies God. Now there are two ways you can magnify something. Either something is extremely small, and in order that we see it rightly, we need to enlarge it through a microscope, the act of magnification. 
or something is so large, but yet so far away from us that we must enlarge it by a telescope in order that we would see it in all of its grandeur and glory. This song of Mary in Luke 1 is Mary's vision of God, her understanding of who God is, and her encouragement in her soul and rejoicing on account of the truths of God's character that she calls to mind and that she knows from his word. So she is here viewing God through a telescope so large yet in some ways so far away that he might be seen as he is in all of his grandeur and glory and would be the source of our eternal and everlasting joy. And ultimately that joy is fixed upon Mary because the God that is so far that she's using a telescope to see in that sense. At Christmas comes near, doesn't he? And she knows that perhaps better than any of us. So that's what we're going to consider. We're going to begin reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, and we'll read down through verse 56 together. Before we read, let's pray and ask God to open our minds and our hearts. God, we thank you for your word, and we declare this morning that we need it. God, we hope by reading these words on these pages not to read the words of a mere man, not just to hear what some guy had to say, God, but but to encounter the word of the living God. All truth, that, that which will change us and produce fruit in our lives in accord with righteousness. But God, we recognize that we need your help. That in our sin, our vision is clouded. In our failure, we cannot understand the things that we read. And so we, we ask very simply this morning now as we turn to your word, God, that by the power and the ministry of your spirit, you would open it before us. You would impart it to us. God, you would plant it within us and cause it to bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 1, so Mary has been to visit Elizabeth and to tell her of uh, the the child that is to be born to her. And uh, she has been blessed by Elizabeth. And if you remember John the Baptist in the womb, even uh, leaps with joy. Uh, affirming and confirming the, the, the nature of Jesus Christ and the deity and the person that's in Mary's womb. It's a fascinating story. But then look at verse 46, what Mary declares. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his Servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So we see right off the bat this overarching theme that's present in this glorious Christmas psalm, if you will, that Mary 
proclaims and perhaps even sings as she said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For now on, all generations will call me blessed. There is this overwhelming rejoicing in Mary's soul because of what God has communicated to her. And even more than that, because of what God has done in her, and what God is going to do through her. But I think that her joy is Not only because of what she's experienced. Her joy is because of what she knows. Her joy is because of what she believes. And we'll see that as we work through these lines together. But Mary here is reflecting throughout this song. On wonderful, glorious truths about the nature and the character of the God that has worked in her. And it is those truths, those beliefs that bring about in her soul, that bring about in her mind, that bring about in her heart, this glorious exaltation of God. You may not be there this morning. And it's Christmas Eve and you may be here sullen and sour and angry. Maybe not angry and sour, but perhaps you're here this morning in great despair and Tragedy has befallen your family or there is some deep and lasting sorrow in your life. Maybe you're not where Mary was and you want to know, man, I I want my soul to magnify the Lord and my, my rejoicing and hope to be in the Lord God, my Savior. How can I get there? Well, we would all do well to learn from Mary. To, to learn that our joy is rooted in and fixed upon the things that we know to be true about God. And our joy is directly related to how uh, faithfully and how committedly we believe those things. And so we would do well on this Christmas Eve morning to think about the things that Mary brings out and declares to be true about God. We're going to begin by considering what Mary has to say about the kindness of God. Friends, we serve a kind God. And the God that loves us is a God of kindness. Look at what she says in verse 47 and 48. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Down in verse 49, who is it that has looked? For he who is mighty has done these great things for me. And what is his name? And holy is his name. Do do you see the first thing that Mary's hinting at? The first source of great joy for Mary with regard to the kindness of God? It is that a God that is so holy and a God that is so mighty and a God that is so powerful would give attention to her. Did did you see that in the text there? My soul rejoices in the Lord because he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. She sees herself in all of her rags, filthy and wretched, broken and undone. And then she sees God in all of his glory and majesty and righteousness. And then she recognizes the necessary gap that exists between the creator and the creature. But then she becomes eminently aware of his nearness, doesn't she? 
that I am the attention of his grace and the focus of his affection. That he looked upon me, even in my humble estate. That this gap that exists that I cannot bridge, he stepped over with one leap. And he looks. And he works. Friends, has it ever gripped your soul to reflect upon the reality that God's gaze is upon you? That the attention of God's gaze is a sinner such as you. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, the God of all gods, the creator of everything that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That he looks and sees you. That this is, this is not language in the scriptures of, of visual, like well, I see a tree over there. It's a language of knowledge, of intimacy and of knowing. That God sees me. That is that God knows me. Right? The language of the Bible. That he knows every hair upon your head. The idea that the God of the universe. Feeds the sparrow. And waters the flower. How much more does he care for his children? The Bible encourages us to ask. If he is so near to the tree. How much nearer is this God to you and me? Has that ever arrested your soul? To see God for who he is. To use a telescope and, and, and blow him up and behold him in his glory. And see yourself in the humble estate that you dwell in. And recognize the distance between you and God. At least in terms of holiness and righteousness. Knowing that you could never get to where he is. And then to remember he hears me. He promises to hear. Because he promises to pray. He listens. The God of the universe not only listens, he responds. And he's not a distant watchmaker that wound up his creation and let it unfold. But he's right here and can see me in a way that he knows me and is passionate about me. An engaged, interested, near sovereign. Notice also that she begins with articulating this aspect of his kindness through nearness in its personal respect. She's not yet glorifying God because of what he's doing for Israel or for the nations or for the world. She hasn't gotten there because she's overcome with the truth that God sees me. God knows me. God identifies me. God called me out and set me apart for salvation and glory from eternity past. Me. So many people struggle with the sovereignty of God over things like salvation. And they say, well, why, why not this person? It's the wrong question. The question is, why me? Why a wretch like me? Why, why did God see and care for me? Why did God leave heaven for me? Why did God incarnate himself and take on human flesh for me? And that's where Mary begins. Notice this also. Not only that it's personal, notice that God sees her and she knows that his sight is a sight of loving kindness and faithfulness, not of judgment and condemnation. 
She recognizes her humble estate and she knows her failure, it seems from the text. But she is not fearful. God, God, is, not, God is not looking upon laughing and scoffing. God is not coming with a vindictive anger. Mary, Mary says he sees me. And he looks upon me with kindness. Notice what she says in 50, mercy. She says, not only is his mercy for me, and that's where she is at this moment, but it's for those that fear him. And that's the next thing. She moves on from her personal consideration of this mercy, this kindness of God, this nearness of God, this sight of God. Beyond herself, look at what she says. And this same mercy... This same affection and this same looking upon with kindness, it is for all of those that fear him. It's not just for me. It's for all of those that fear them. Look down at the end of what she says. He has, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So the same theme recapitulated at the end, not only with all people generally, but even with his special people Israel. For those that fear God, for his chosen He looks upon them with loving kindness and faithfulness, with great affection and care. Dear Christian, this morning, even in spite of your failures, do you feel that? Do you know that? That's a truth of the gospel. That's what Paul proclaimed, isn't it, in Romans? That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should not spur us on to just sin all the more that grace might abound, Paul says. But it should be a great source of encouragement for us. Because we sin and we fail every day. But to know that the gaze of God and the attention of God is ever upon us. And it is not for our judgment. Because he sees us when he looks. Covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not of our own. A couple of points of application before we move to the next aspect of God's character. This morning, church, are you struck by God's kindness to you? In spite of all of the difficulties of your life and in spite of whatever, you know, you brought into this place this morning, the the simple question, are we aware of and struck by and in awe of God's kindness to us is a fair one? Or is it lost on us a bit? Are we able to look around in the midst of our lives and see the poured out blessings of God that abound? Blessings that we do not deserve. Blessings that are the result of his mercy only. Blessings that we could not merit. But if you're like those that I spoke of a few moments ago and perhaps are at an extremely low point this morning and you're not so Uh, able to see the blessings of God. They're a bit overshadowed because of the difficulties of his providence in your life or perhaps the difficulties that your sin has brought. Let me ask you this morning, if you can't see all of those other blessings in your life, let's begin by by desiring and laboring to see that God in in his kindness is near us. Are you struck this morning that the God enthroned in heaven sees you, cares to look. That if you were the only person in this place today, God's presence by his spirit would be worth it to him. 
that he cares so much for you that he would not spare his only son for you. And that in accord with his promised plans for redemption, that he will not have heaven without you. Has it struck you this morning, in spite of whatever difficulties, in spite of whatever low place you are in life, that the God of all gods, the God of all creation, in all of his holiness, in all of his righteousness, in all of his otherliness and glory and majesty, that he sees you just like he saw Mary. You see, I think Mary at this point was overcome with the kindness of God that made him so near. And let's be specific to her situation, right? He was so near at this point to Mary that she could feel him move. At least she would be able to in some months. So near that she would soon touch his face and feed him and care for him. Friends, it's Christmas Eve, and that's the message of Christmas. This kindness of God that brings him close. Our Emmanuel, that God is with us, and that in the person of Jesus Christ, incarnated in the flesh, God left heaven for me. Because he sees me in my humble estate, and he would not leave me there. Because he set me apart for glory some eternity ago. And promised that I should enjoy it forever with him. Not only the kindness of God. This leads us, at least this immediate discussion of the nearness of God. It leads us into the next aspect that I think is ever before Mary's mind. And an encouragement to her soul. And that is the constancy of God. The idea that God is constant. Constancy. This word means the quality of being enduring and unchanging. In theological circles you may hear this term uh, referred to as the immutability of God. The, the idea that God is unchanging and unchangeable. Friends, if God could change, if he could change his mind, if he could change his plan, it would mean that there was some error the first time. It would mean that he's learned something new. It would mean simply that he could not and would not be God. But God is God. And God is unchanging. Now, how this relates to Mary's song is... This kindness of God flows from her personal reflection of his kindness to her, to her external expression of his kindness to Israel and to all of those that fear him. Because for Mary, it is of no surprise that God looks upon, with kindness and loving faithfulness, his children. Why? Because this is simply the way of God. This is the modus operandi of God. This is the way that he has worked in history past. And Mary knew it well. She knew of the kindness of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She knew of the kindness of God to David and Solomon. She knew of the kindness of God to Israel in exile as he brought them back in order that they would inhabit the Holy Land in Jerusalem. He knew of the kindness of God in her own life and in her own family. She knew that God is a God that loves those that fear him. She knew Ezekiel 18 and 33, that God does not delight in in the destruction of the wicked. And she believed, as we would come to learn later in Romans 8, 32, that God loved us so much and would so express his kindness to us that he would not spare his own son, but give him up for us. Friends, it is so helpful 
to know the God that never changes. It's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. It's one of the reasons that we have all the strange stories that we do in the Old Testament. It's why we've labored for as long as we have in books like Ezra and Nehemiah, reading all of it, even the lists of crazy names that are so difficult for us to read and understand as your pastors. Why? So that we can be encouraged by the faithfulness and the kindness of God to his people before. Because he's the same, the scripture tells us, yesterday and every day before that, today, and he will be the same God forever. His love for us will not change. His desire for us will not change. His willingness to go to the ends of the earth to get us and redeem us will not change. His kindness toward us and looking upon us with love and care, it will not change. Does that encourage your soul this morning? Not, you know, an old pastor I used to have back in the country say, man, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. You know, I, I don't know, but does, does, that, does that excite your soul? It, it did Mary's. It did Mary's to know that the same God that was at work in her father's life, in her grandfather's life, and in the generations of Israelites that have come before her is now the same God that was at work in her womb. The same God that in her humble estate saw her and cared for her and did not give to her as she deserved. She knew this to be his track record and his character. Where do we see that? Look at the second half of verse 50. And in his mercy, it is for those that fear him, what? From generation to generation. That's axiomatic for all time. That, that this is the way God has been. And this is the way God will continue to be. Because it is part of who God is. Friends, people ask all the time, is there anything God can't do? The answer to that question is yes. Yes. God cannot do anything that would contradict his nature. God is totally holy, righteous, and pure. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. It's not just that God doesn't. He can't. If he even could, if he possessed the capacity for sin, he would not be God. That's how holy and righteous he is. He can't do anything that would be in contradiction to his nature. Friends, to, to, to change in any way would be a contradiction to his nature. So we can take it to the bank, like Mary did, and stake our life upon the truth that God who loved his people before is the God that loves us today and will be the God that loves his people forever. Because he is a constant, unchanging, immovable, righteous, and holy God. And Mary is greatly encouraged by that fact. How do we know? You may be asking the question, I want to be encouraged like that. How can I know what God's done? How can I know about his faithfulness? How can I be so encouraged? And how can I know what to expect of him in the future? It's very simple. Read your Bible. Aren't you thankful that God gave us this word in objective terms? You're not dependent upon me to tell you. You're not dependent upon a faithful family or parents to tell you. If you were dependent upon me to tell you, I would mess the stories up at some point. I would forget the important parts. I would only tell you the parts that I like or that, you know, don't address my own sin. God didn't leave it up to us. He's given us this word. If you want to know what to expect of God, know your Bible. We're going to see in a little bit that Mary did. 
J.C. Ryle put it this way in bringing this second issue of God's constancy to a close. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. This is a fantastic quote. The true Christian should always give close attention to Bible history and to the lives of individual saints. Let us often examine the quote, and he quotes from the Song of Solomon, the footsteps of the flock, he says. Why? Because such study throws light on God's mode of dealing with his people. God is of one mind. What he does for them and to them in the past, he is likely to do now and in time to come. Such study then will teach us what to expect. It will check unwarrantable expectations and encourage us when we are cast down. For happy is the man whose mind is well stored with scripture knowledge. It will make him patient and hopeful. Because there is no greater source of joy than to know what God's done. Because being God, he will continue to do that, those things for eternity. Not only his kindness and his constancy, but thirdly, Mary makes a big deal about his commitment. The commitment of God. What is God committed to? At least from Mary's perspective, and I think rightly so from that of all of Scripture, Verses 51 and following make clear that God is supremely committed to himself. He is supremely committed to himself, namely to his promises. His word. Because of his constance, the things that God has said, he will and he must do. His promise is absolutely Sure, and it becomes the culminating encouragement for Mary. Notice that he is committed to himself in all of his righteousness, in all of his glory, so that his mercy and his working in human history, it comes through the 51, the strength of his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. What is God working by the strength of his arm to do in creation? Namely, through this baby Jesus, this event that Mary knows So eminently, through the strength of his arm, what happens? First of all, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, yet exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. So there's this twofold stretching out of the strong arm of God. On the one hand, because God is committed to his righteousness and his justice and his judgments, He comes and he works in creation to judgment, right? Unto the just judgment of the wicked. That is an aspect of the coming of God, both at the incarnation of Jesus and the ultimate consummation of all things when he returns again. He will come with a flaming sword of judgment and none will stand before him. And all will bow the knee and acknowledge that he alone is God, whether it's willfully by Christ in their heart, by faith in him, or whether it's at the end of the sword. And she acknowledges that, that he is so committed to himself, even in his holiness and righteousness, that he can do nothing else. But notice it's not only in judgment, that he breaks into human, crea- into human history and breaks into creation and works for judgment and for blessing. And that blessing is in accord with promise. She says, he has exalted those of humble estate, And he has filled the hungry with good things. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel 
The question is why? Just because, because God looked down and felt sorry for them and was moved by them? I mean, that's a fair question. It was God sitting in heaven and saw the plight of Israel at this time and just felt, man, I just can't let this happen. I'm just, I'm brokenhearted for these people. No. The only reason Jesus came, look at the end of verse 54. God has helped Israel, his children, in remembrance of his mercy. What is he remembering? What mercy? It is the mercy of promise. Look at verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you see what Mary's declaring? That God's ultimate purpose and his ultimate commitment is to himself and the things that he's promised to do. God came near and dwelt among us because he promised to save us. That promise came in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman. That promise came in Genesis later to Abraham and to his offspring. That promise came to David. Again and again and again, that promise is made that God will make a way for his people. And because God has promised, it was sure. And notice the past tense here. I love this. He has accomplished all of these things, but Jesus hasn't even gotten here yet. He's in her womb. He hasn't even been born. His promise is so sure. These promises of God that are consummated and find their accomplishment and fulfillment in the baby Jesus on Christmas. They are so sure. You can stake your life on them. They are so sure. It is as if all of these things are already accomplished. That's the force of the past tense here. So it's as if they're done. Because God said it, so it is written in stone. Now, there is one last fair question. How did Mary know? Mary gets it so right, guys. One of the themes that's interesting, say, of the book of Mark, of the other gospel accounts, particularly in Mark, is that nobody knows who Jesus is. Nobody. <laughs> Except for the demons. There's all these questions about the, the identity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. The, his disciples don't get it. The Jews don't get it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the pagans around him. Nobody seems to have a good theology, a right understanding of who Jesus is, fully God, except for the demons. You know who gets it, though? Luke chapter 1. Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, and John the Baptist in the womb. They all get it. How did Mary get it so right? Listen carefully to, to circle back because Mary was well acquainted with God's word. Here's what I mean. She was looking for the Messiah to come and she was looking for him to come in a certain way because she knew what God said that he would come and how it would happen. Now, that should be a great conviction to our hearts. Do you know why we are so little encouraged day to day? Why we so often fail to see what God is doing and to understand his working? It is because we have no clue what God has promised to do. We don't even know what to look for. We have, as J.C. Ryle said, unwarrantable expectations because of our lack of knowledge of Scripture. 
She knew of the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to her fathers and to her people Israel. She knew what God was up to. And keep in mind, friends, this comes to Mary as the first act of God in human history after 400-something years of silence. Said nothing, but she didn't miss it. This made me think about an illustration, and it's not going to be a perfect one, but this past year, uh, I traveled with my wife and our four small children, relatively small, under the age of 10, to West Virginia to see my brother. And we drove, and it was a long trip, like 12, 13, 14 hours, somewhere in that neighborhood. It just all runs together. That's a long way to go with four kids in tow. What was interesting, though, is the way, the perception that Jessica and I have about the hours that pass and the perception of my children that are enduring the long, painful journey. With every hour that passes and with every sign, when we get to, you know, the, the corner of Georgia and then Tennessee, man, praise God for Tennessee, right? And then, and then we pass on up into Kentucky and Virginia and we pass on up into, pray, when you see those signs, with every hour that passes by, I know, I know what to expect before we leave. I know how long it's going to be. I know the difficulty and I know the signs to look for so that when I see those signs and as the hours pass by, so far from being driven to despair like my six-year-old, I'm given great hope. On the last, this last time that we went, uh, one of my children, one of my younger ones, was convinced with every passing hour that I was more and more lost. If, if, they, if this child asked me one time, Daddy, are you sure you know the way to Uncle Lawson's house? Why was she asking? Because with every hour that passed, she was driven more to despair. Look, if we hadn't gotten there in 10 hours, we're never going to get there. You don't have a clue where you're going. Why? She didn't know the route. She had unrealistic and unwarrantable expectations. She didn't know where we were going. She didn't know the signs to look for. Do you see the difference? So with every passing hour, she was driven to despair. Friends, the Christian life is a lot like that, isn't it? If our expectations are wrong, if we have no idea what God has promised, and we have no idea what signs to look for, if we have no idea where we're headed, then with every passing hour, friends, he's been gone a minute. And with every painful difficulty, rather than being growing ever more hopeful that the day is closer, we're going to be driven to despair. That if he hasn't come, he must not be coming. Daryl Bach, and I'll close with this. He said the hymn's major burden, talking about the hymn that Mary offers. The hymn's major burden shows that Mary trusts in the fulfillment of God's promises. They will come to pass, he says. Now, speaking to us, he concludes, we then are to identify with Mary's confidence, her faith, and her sense of joy. Whether a God-fearer from Israel or from the nations, the reader should know that God will vindicate his promise to his nation, and to those who fear him. His promise will come.
come to pass. And friends, Christmas is the evidence of that. This Christmas season, for all of the things that are there to encourage us, may we remember the God that sent Jesus and made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Let us remember what God has promised to do, the fact that he never changes his mind or his will or his plan, and his absolute commitment to himself and to the things that he's promised. And let us be full of joy and exalting of Jesus Christ this Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning. Lord, I thank you for Mary's song. I thank you for her testimony and the praise that she offered you. God, I thank you for her theology, the way that she teaches us about who you are and what you're doing. And I pray very simply this morning that like Mary, we would be able to trust that what you have said, you will and you must do. And God, may that be a deep source of encouragement to our hurting and waning hearts this morning. God, help us to look to Christ and help us to hope in Christ alone. God, thank you for your kindness and for your nearness. That you came and dwelt among us because you had to have us. Help us to remember that tomorrow, and Tuesday, and every day that passes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.